Welcome, everybody, to the Aaron's High Cap Adventure Radio Program. If you want to give me an email, give me an email at aaronsgunshop at gmail.com and give me your comments and thoughts. All positive things get you know responded to, and all the negative stuff gets responded to as well. I think there's that delete button to the right. So just kidding. All right. Also, social media. Got a lot of stuff going on, on social media. Facebook. If you go to aaronsgunshop.com, go to the Facebook page, you'll see me posting current updates, product spotlights that are coming up. Uh, some training videos, the works. And when you get there, share them, like me on Facebook. Also, follow us on Instagram. And by all means, without a doubt, go to the YouTube channel and subscribe to the YouTube channel. So many great videos there. And ladies and gentlemen, we have Super Attorney Rick Dodd, and we've got Attorney Extraordinaire Benton Ross Watson, and so many different other interviews and product spotlights, the works. We're in our True Stories of Self-Defense segment right now out of the American Rifleman's The Armed Citizens Column, 1982 edition. Story number one. I'm reading these colds. Let's see what happens. Edward Martin started to get nervous when a customer began fidgeting and moving to the center of his back seat on his cab. The St. Louis cabbie's fears were confirmed when the man reached over the seat, stabbed him, and demanded cash. Martin responded by firing his 25 automatic, hitting the criminal three times. The man, who was linked to another cab holdup, died of the wounds. Now, the one thing I want to say, or there's a few things I want to say on this, but the first thing is 25 automatics kill, ladies and gentlemen. A uh, pellet rifle will kill you. So when these people say, ah, it's not going to do anything, granted, a larger caliber is better. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, utilize what you got, make it work for you, as this cabbie did. The other thing is he got stabbed and he was still able to you know, maintain himself and take care of this bad guy. Story number two, Connie Albatron had been robbed five times in one year and had decided that she wasn't going to let it happen again. After a criminal robbed her at knife point inside a Tampa, Florida bar where she worked, she followed the man into the parking lot, leveled a 25 automatic, and held him for police. I thought she was hunting him down to shoot him. That would have been bad. But she held him at bay until the police got there and did it with a little old 25. So remember, whatever you got, master it. Story number three. Retired postal clerk Clark Goodwin, 68, saw a pair of men leave his next-door neighbor's house and try to break into the neighbor's car. When he challenged them, one man fired at him with a 22 caliber pistol. Goodwin opened up with his own pistol, routing the two. The next-door neighbor was found severely beaten and rolled up in a carpet. Gosh. Police speculated that the criminals planned to return and kill him. Goodwin was honored with the St. Louis Grand Jury association for his action that's just being alert ladies and gentlemen got to be alert of your surroundings take care of your neighbors you know community watches the whole works we're getting to this point where everybody stays in the confines of their house because all the electronics and we, we don't even know who our neighbors are it's a good thing to know who our neighbors are and, and take care of each other okay next story when an armed robber pointed a 22 pistol at him and demanded money tulsa oklahoma liquor store owner thomas shaw reached instead for a 357 magnum revolver all right everybody's getting excited now larger caliber he opened up and hit the criminal once in the head and three times in the chest, killing him on the spot. Yeah, I would think so. The robber had a criminal record dating back to 1942 and had killed a man in 1952. Police called the dead man an 11-time loser. He should have been lost a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen, and I have no remorse, no question, no doubt as to this gentleman did the right thing, and I'm sure he's walking tall and proud. Next story. An armed robber pointed a pistol at a Hamilton, Ohio grocer, William Hebe, I believe you pronounce it, and demanded cash. As the criminal rifled this cash register, 
Heeb grabbed a 38 caliber revolver and opened fire, hitting him three times. The robber tried to flee in a waiting car, but died before he got that far. Ladies and gentlemen, another thing that I notice in the older stories is that they're much more accurate in their gunfire. In the current stories that we read, they hit him in the leg or they shot and nobody got hit and, and things of that nature. I, I don't know if it's because people in that day just got to shoot more or they were trained better. I don't know. But that's the one thing I noticed in a lot of these stories. Okay, that's from out of the American Rifleman. Now I've got a couple stories here that I think are interesting. 65-year-old beats burglar with a bat. When a Florida woman heard a noise and saw a man trying to break into her car early Sunday, she took matters into her own hands. Clarice Ganey, 65, of Gainesville, told WGFL that she picked up her softball bat early Sunday, braced herself, and eased open the door before hitting Antonio Mosley. I I took the bat and hit him upside the head like, Ganey said, adding that that 5'6", 300-pound man said, Ow! Mosley ran to a nearby mobile home park, leaving behind his pants, shirt, and sock. This part I don't get. Uh, police said and a canine unit tracked him down, and Ganey said she easily identified him because of the knot on his head. <laughs> Ganey said she played softball in high school and can still swing a bat. He better be glad I didn't have a gun, Ganey said, because I would have shot him. So there you go. 65-year-old beats the crap out of a robber with a baseball bat. Welcome back, everybody, to the Aaron's High Cab Adventure Radio Program. To my left, in the house, I have Super Attorney Rick Dodd. And Rick, it's always a pleasure to have you. And in case you don't know it, Rick Dodd is the part of the Coplino Dodd Krebs Law Firm that helps sponsors this long segment. And uh, we couldn't be on the air without him and all of our other sponsors. So we want to thank these guys and thank all of our other sponsors as well. And remember to support them and um, as much as you can. Rick, we've been doing the Bill of Rights, going over the 10 Bill of Rights. And Ross has been in... And done, I think, what, six of them? At least. Seven of them. And now you're in to do your favorite, which is the Seventh Amendment. Yeah, I I enjoy doing the Fourth Amendment, but the Seventh is definitely my favorite because it's the kind of law I practice, the jury trials. Well, it makes sense. So you must know it inside and out. Well, there's not much to it. Uh, What the courts have determined is that it's pretty self-explanatory. Have, have you read it for us? You know what's funny? You say it's self-explanatory, and I was reading it, and I go, I need questions on this, this, and this, because I'm not sure of it. So, no, it's not self-explanatory, Judge. I need an explanation. So that's why Rick's here. He's going to help us out. I'm going to read to you. First, before I do that, Rick, i like to read the preamble to the Bill of Rights. A lot of people didn't know that it was there. And the, the preamble to the Bill of Rights is just an insurance policy to make sure that nothing's misconstrued and that they understand clearly what these rights are about. So well, the, the history of that preamble also has to do with the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. Uh, the Federalists, of course, wanted to adopt the Constitution as it was. The Anti-Federalists were concerned that it would take away states' rights. So the Anti-Federalist, I mean, the Federalists then decided that if we come up with these 10 Bill of Rights to guarantee that the federal government won't overstep their bounds, we can get it passed, which they were successful in doing. Okay, very good. Good explanation. Let me read what it says. Congress of the United States begun and held at the city of New York on Wednesday, the 4th of March, 1789. The conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution 
expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added. And as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution. And then let me read to you the Seventh Amendment. In suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. So that's the Seventh Amendment. And Rick, I got I got questions just because of terminology and phrasing uh, that would me need clarification. You want to go over those real quick? Well, basically, what what you got is the Seventh Amendment is is guarantees the right to a jury trial, and that's what's really important for us to consider. And and let me talk a little bit about it before you ask questions. Okay. And and it's 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 like the first generations of Americans believed that this right was so important that they didn't want to pass the Constitution as it was without it. Uh, there were actually 12 amendments that were placed in front of the states, and many of the states didn't adopt but 11, and some didn't adopt the same, didn't adopt the, didn't adopt the same one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it left us with 10 yeah. amendments that were adopted by, I think, 75% of the, of the states. Uh, during the process, Vermont got named as a state so it caused us to actually have to have two more. So I think the last ones to adopt them were Delaware and New York. So that's where we get the Ten Amendments. But they were absolutely uh, requiring the Seventh Amendment, uh, the, the one for a jury trial. And the reason for that was is because leading up to the American Revolution, uh, here in America, we didn't have a right to a jury trial. Now, John Wilkes back in London, he wrote uh, some stuff that was not very... Uh, flowery for the for the crown you know you're saying that now I, I can't believe that would happen back then it's just it's against your nature or is it because we're americans with these rights now that we are so opposed to that thought process well we weren't in charge then the crown was in charge yeah, yeah i guess you're right yeah so you know it all has to do with who's in power and the crown was in power but he was losing some of his power uh, basically there was a parliament and the people uh, had decided that they had the right to behead some of their leaders. And, you know, the Crown didn't want that to happen, obviously. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so he was willing to give up a little bit of his power. So so when uh, the jury trial came along and John Wilkes had written his, his stuff that was sort of anti-against the Crown, they, uh, the jury actually acquitted him. And that decision was uh, was applauded on both sides of the Atlantic, not just here in America. But we didn't have that right. So... As you recall, the taxation without uh, representation came up. The Tea Party happened. And then when the revolution came along and we started to adopt, we wanted the right to a jury trial. So they had that opportunity to uh, to go against what the English government had when they tried to enforce this Stamp Act. And they also hated the actions of Parliament when it came to criminal and civil actions. So they uh, they wanted that jury trial benefiting everybody in the United States. So what happened in the new government, one, represented, one representative of our new government pointed out that there was no provision had been included for a right to a jury trial. This is when they were just talking about the naked Constitution, in other words, the one without uh, the, Bill of the, the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. So they uh, went ahead and, 
and put that in. And, of course, the majority of the delegates, I think it was unanimous, picked it up. And then all of the states that ratified also ratified the Seventh Amendment. So you had uh, a story about the Federalists that I just talked about Mm -hmm. wanting it uh, in order to go ahead and get the Constitution passed. They originally were against it. Then they found out that they might not get the whole thing passed, and then they were for it. And suddenly those that were for against getting the Constitution decided they uh, might be against the Bill of Rights, even though that's what they had wanted in the first place. So it's kind of one of those political mix-ups that makes a good story. So what, a, a state that didn't want one right could have killed the whole thing of all the other rights? Well, 75%. So you had to have 75% want all of the ones that were passed. In other words, if you had if you had a hundred percent wanting eight of them, and then only sixty percent wanting another one or two, and then a different one or two not being wanted by another part, then it might not pass those others. But a hundred percent would, of course, got the eight. But you got to have seventy five for each, each one. Each one, of them. okay, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like a package deal. You either vote on this or not. It's one by one, percentage wise, that gets accepted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what happens today is that there are people, mainly corporations, uh, that are against the idea. And and they're basically jury bashing. And, you know, they're the same sort of wealthy and powerful special interests that our founders were warning us about when they passed it. In other words, people who could yield and wield power against us, you know, the common people mm-hmm. that were out there trying to do the best we could with what we had. But if we have that special right for a jury trial, it, it's a rule of law. And the rule of law helps all Americans ensure our freedoms of expression, the sanctity of our contracts, the rights of workers out there, the safety of products and services, the preservation of our environment, and all the underpinnings of our great civil society. And you see, if you take e- any one of those away, because the powerful are not in favor of it. And when I say powerful, I mean, it's going to cost. If you have a corporation out there that's polluting our environment, there's a cost. And, of course, it's going to be saving that corporation a certain amount of money because instead of having to process their their uh, pollutants, mm-hmm. they just dump them out on the ground. It runs down the creek. See, but that's a grotesque way of making a profit. I understand there may be waste and spoilage and some type of pollution, but when there is no protection, like you're saying here, and they just have the free ability to do whatever they want, it grotesquely violates human and natural, just nature in itself. So I could see how that just has to be taken care of, you know? Well, and, and but Can when the bottom on? line for a being, and the Supreme Court of the United States has said that a corporation is a being, a person, if you may, you know, for freedom of speech, for instance, that's the big one that came out more recently. Uh, when the bottom line for them is to make a profit, you kind of wonder where the concept of grotesqueness stops. I mean, they are out to make that profit. That's the bottom line. And being gross is not a big concern for them. So that's why we have to have regulations. And, of course, we we uh, hear the newspaper talk about terrible regulations, job-killing regulations, and, and we talk about we hear it from the rich and the powerful, but uh, you know the regulations are necessary because of those sorts of actions. And fortunately, 
the jury trials will not only protect us as individuals, but it will protect those folks too. So if they get wrongly accused, is of, there is there a fair term? Is the term overregulation a fair term? Well, you know, the, it depends on what side of the fence you're standing on. If you're standing on the side of the fence that's clean and pristine, and you don't want the stuff running over on your side of the fence, then it's not. But if you're on the other side of the fence and you want to get rid of your stuff and let it run across the other guy, then yeah, you're overregulated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, that's true. If you're if you're driving a Lamborghini down the road, the speed limit suddenly changes to forty miles an hour. You're thinking, man, I'm I'm overregulated. I'm paying too much for this car, man. <laughs> I can't even go past forty miles an hour. So it just, it just depends on where you're sitting. I mean. Uh, uh, the, the term overregulation. I got a story about a Lamborghini. I, I'm in, um, and, and it also depends on on your beliefs. You know, if you have a core belief that, such as I do, that, and it's based on what I believe to be lifelong experiences, that there is global warming, and that it is caused by human activity, then you're going to be looking at some some regulation and saying, "Well, that's great, that's wonderful," but if you're on the other hand. You are uh, solely uh, concerned about economic development, then you want everything to burn and churn. So, then what about the middle ground where we want economic development in a very smart manner that's not overburdening, that won't? Because I mean, business has to thrive to a certain point; otherwise, well, it we, collapses. We, we all we all psychologically like to believe that we're fair and reasonable. If I stand up in front of a jury panel of ninety people and ask who's fair and reasonable, they're all going to raise their hand. It's going to be me, yeah. But then, you know, Mr. Smith over here, he may uh, uh, be really hardcore against uh, having any kind of, say, for instance, uh, coloring on his windows in, in a car, whereas someone else over on the left, they may be happy to have limo uh, covering on their car windows so nobody can see in. So it just it just depends on who's fair and reasonable, you know, the middle ground, of course, is, is what we're after. Uh, that'd be the great thing to have some sort of middle ground. Uh, but then again, the concepts of people's ideas about what is the middle ground changes and shifts, as do politicians uh, trying to get our votes. It's, it's a twisted, messed up world. <laughs> the web of lies. man. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it is, it is what it is, and we have to work within the system. Well, what's nice about it is that... Y- if it goes one way, we have the ability to say it's not working and try to do what it takes to get it changed through persuasion and information and votes. Yeah. So. Well, and, and, you know, talk about votes. Uh, some of our duties as Americans is to protect our country and the military. And certainly everyone talks about voting as, as a duty of all Americans. Well, serving on a jury is also a duty for yes, all Americans. Absolutely. It is a patriotic duty. And without that opportunity, then you see you get overreaching by the rich and powerful. Without that opportunity, you get overreached by politicians who've been put in place by rich and powerful. But with a jury, uh, you're able to go in and normal folks uh, can make a decision based on you know, the six or 12, depending on what kind of courthouse you're in, uh, they can come together with their lifelong uh, experiences and come up with a hopefully middle of the ground decision, mm-hmm. as you talked about. Those that are against that concept, they those who seek to undermine this this institution that's fundamentally American, they distrust the American people. And what I mean by that, that's you and your family, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. 
Those people who go out and do their patriotic duty of serving on a jury are being distrusted by those who are trying to ramp down that system. So, anyway, having said all that. You know, you've known me for quite a while now, Rick, and I think you know where I come from on all this, and that is there are pillars that hold this country up in our way of life, and it's the Constitution Bill of Rights. And if they get chipped away and eaten away and put to the side, I believe this country fails. I know this country will fail. So I'm very adamant and very stubborn and very protective of the the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to preserve them the way they were written. However, outside of that, preserving the goose allows us to have the eggs and we can paint the eggs to different colors that we like or favor or get persuaded to do. So that's, ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to make clear, that's what, the way I've always been. I wore a uniform to protect the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the way of American life. And the reason I have issues nowadays is because the, the Constitution and those rights are constantly being chipped away and trying to made altered or eliminated by a lot of people, in my opinion, that don't have a true core value or understanding of the American way of life. I think the American way of life is being diluted too quickly. Um, a lot of people coming in from other areas don't understand the way this country was and built. And I say that because maintain America for what it is, protect it, and then those who come in to assimilate can bring their culture to and, and celebrate their culture there, but also remember that America comes first if you're here. Yeah. Talk about celebrating cultures. I mean, uh, all you have to do is go out to Marek in the last part of August, and you'll see a culture being celebrated. With, uh, But they have assimilated. I mean, they're a part of our society, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. I remember um, being raised in New York. Don't crucify me for that. Um, but being raised in New York, I have Lebanese heritage. And you saw all sorts of cultures. I mean... But what it was, I remember my mom and dad, they would have, they would have the club, the Lebanon American club, and they would have their foods, and they'd speak their language, they'd play their games, but when they would go to parade, the banners on the side of the vehicles would say, thank you, America, God bless America, they put America first, and they just enjoyed their culture. The other way it is now, you got people coming here with their culture and wanting to push away the American way of life, and I can't tolerate that. Well, some of the things that have been happening in Texas as far as jury trials uh, would should and do give me great concern, and it should give everybody great concern. Um, I mean, I can't sit here and go through them all, but basically, if if I asked you to give me an example of a jury trial that went awry, in other words, uh, you know, something that just went wrong in the system, most people are going to point to the McDonald's case. And the facts of the McDonald's case are, are rather enlightening, uh, against the concept of limiting juries as opposed to Can you what McDonald's has done. And McDonald's, being the largest advertiser in the world, was able to get this story okay. out that really messed everybody's mind up about what a jury trial is all about. And you got to remember that happened in 1992. Uh, Stella LeBay, uh, I think she was 80 years old, retired school teacher, was a passenger in a car as opposed to being a driver. She got the coffee okay. at the okay. drive through Her son was driving, pulled over to the side of the road where she was going to pop the top off and put some sugar in it. It spilled in her crotch area and gave her third-degree burns. Her labia, ladies and gentlemen, was burned off. 
Uh, Stella had three different skin grafts. She had a total of about $200,000 in medical. Maybe it was 125000 In any case, it was a substantial amount of money. Um, a friend of mine, an tor- attorney out of uh, Houston, took the case in, uh, gosh, what was it? Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's where it was. Not not necessarily a hotbed of liberalism, Albuquerque isn't. So they tried the case, and the jury heard that there had been over 500 different uh, uh, lawsuits against McDonald's, mostly for babies that were sitting, you know, laid down in the chairs while somebody drank coffee in the table and spilt it on the baby. The jury learned that, that also that old people were affected by this because they aren't able to get away from hot stuff as quickly as maybe someone a little more agile. And Stella was really no different in that, she had some serious injuries. She had contacted McDonald's and said, look, if you'll pay my medical, that'll be the end of it. And, of course, they refused. In fact, they got on the witness stand. They, McDonald's, uh, some of their uh, vice presidents got on the witness stand and said, well, we know that we serve our coffee about 10 degrees hotter than everybody else serves their coffee. But we do that so that the aroma will entice people to buy more coffee. So... That did not sound good at all. And they said, yeah, we're not going to change it. We're not going to do it. We're going to keep doing it this way. Uh, It's not our fault. It's her fault. And the jury didn't buy that. You know, they may may have given Stella some uh, fault, but they went ahead and decided that Stella should get about $600,000 plus some punitive damages based on, I think, either one or two days worth of hot coffee sales for McDonald's which was, I think, about $2.2 million, which is a substantial amount of money. But punitive damages are not to in, enhance Stella. It's to punish the wrongdoer. And if you're going to punish a wrongdoer that makes that kind of money and you compare it maybe to, like, me getting a traffic ticket, well, let's give them a traffic ticket and what co- might cost me, uh, you know, $160 if I make, say, forty fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, which should cost McDonald's a lot more than $2.2 million. So it really wasn't outrageous. But nonetheless, the, the trial judge eliminated those punitive damages right off the bat and uh, gave a judgment to Stella for about 600000 You don't hear any part of this story in McDonald's because when they got the Wall Street Journal to print the story and everybody at time, you know, they're all big corporations, so they went with McDonald's, who gives them a lot of money to advertise. Anyway. it's <laughs> a big, vicious circle. So, it, well, it is, and it's, you know, you follow the money. Mm-hmm. But uh, but in any case, uh, both sides appealed. You know, of course, Stella appealed because she didn't think the judge should have taken away the punitives, and McDonald's appealed because they didn't want to pay $600,000. And eventually it was, it was uh, settled for a confidential amount. Uh, non-disclosed confidential amount but uh, it's from good information I think it probably settled for somewhere around what the verdict should have been uh, the 600 and after expenses and medical and uh, attorney's fees Stella would have wound up maybe with about a hundred maybe hundred fifty thousand dollars for her burned off labia and three different skin grafts so the real story is not uh, something that we need to pound our chest over and go, and wow, we've got to get rid of jury trials because they just run away. Just a side note on that coffee. The hotter the coffee, the bitter, more bitter it gets. <laughs> so I mean, you might want coffee a little bit less hot than that. But, it, but it's, it's, it's not what you said earlier. That's, is why, that's why Sefco premium coffee tastes the same. Fresh Joe. Yeah. Fresh Joe. Go ahead. So it's not just 
attorneys like myself who practice trial law that that have a concern about what's going on in Texas. I mean, what we see as wrong-headed activism now is being embraced by some of the Tea Party friends of ours. I mean, Tea Party activists are beginning to question whether the Texas Republicans have dismantled the Seventh Amendment for us. They're beginning to question whether or not uh, our Texas Supreme Court is going too far to the right. They're being to question, beginning to question some of the laws that our legislation, legislators are passing, which limits the right to jury trials. I mean, when I started practicing about 30 years ago, somewhere around two and a half, three percent of civil actions were decided by juries. Today, it's less than one percent. It's about 0.75 percent. So. If you look at that math, it's about a third of what it used to be. And when you look at 2.5%, it wasn't like there's a how whole bunch get, of them going on. How do you get that way when it says clearly that you can't get that way? Well, who allows it to happen where it gets down to 1%? Well, one of the things that's happened is that uh, the legislature keeps writing laws that limit our ability. Uh, and most of the folks out there really don't see these laws and understand. For instance, there's one where uh, it's called paid or incurred. It used to be where if I got hurt and I went to my brother who was a doctor, I could ask my jury to award what would be a fair and reasonable amount for my medical bills. But now with this new legislation, it's only what's paid or incurred. So for instance, if someone's on Medicare and there's a $4,000 medical bill and Medicare only pays 400, then you only get to ask the jury for 400 which you have to pay Medicare back for. So there's no uh, there's no uh, room for attorney's fees anymore. There's no room for any of that stuff. And all the money that was spent, millions of dollars, to pass Proposition 13 here in Texas not only limited uh, our laws and allowed the legislature to put caps on things and shut down some of the Seventh Amendment rights, but it also, in my opinion, poisoned the jury panel's mind. Uh, today, particularly in car wreck cases, juries believe that if they were to award money, that eventually they're going to have to pay for it from themselves. And, you know, that's what insurance is all about. Yeah. It's supposed to, you pay for insurance to take care of this sort of stuff. But juries today are, are so uh, uh, concerned about giving too much money that I see probably 95% of the car wreck cases that are tried in Texas result in absolutely no money for pain and suffering and no money for mental anguish. Yeah, but isn't that based on the persuasion of a, an attorney in the courtroom saying, hey... Well, it's based on the minds that are already poisoned by misinformation like the McDonald's case. Again, when I when I stand up and ask people for examples of... Yeah, I know, but uh, wouldn't an attorney bring that up and say, hey, see, so they're, well, they're trying to persuade the jury using examples, then uh, a person like yourself would come in and try and say, no, no, but, no, no. But, but this is... This is the fundamental thing about jury psychology is I cannot stand up and change anybody's mind in a two-hour opportunity to speak to them in the board dire. I can't, I can't convince them that their core values and core beliefs are wrong. So what I have to do is ride the wild pony. I have to go, oh, yeah, there are way too many lawsuits, ladies and gentlemen. We know that. But this is not one of the frivolous ones that I represent. And that. That's the only way to do it, according to the trial psychologist, because if I try to convince them that Stella LeBay's case was genuine and that the concept that they have that there are too many lawsuits is wrong, uh, then suddenly they look at me as just Yeah, but being you know, Ricky, 
I heard the side of that story of a woman who spilled coffee on herself and is now suing McDonald's for all this money. What a jerk, okay? Yeah. Here you explain the details, and I go, well, I get it. I understand it. I mean, it was severe burns. Yes, she's partially to blame, but there's also... Why are you, the company makes it sound like they're so into profits, they don't care they're jacking up the price because they're enticing you to buy more coffee. I can see that aspect of it too. So if you were to explain that to a jury, maybe that's persuasion right there. Well, again, they have core beliefs that there's too many lawsuits and that they get too much money, so they're just not going to do it. And where they get that is from companies, uh, organizations like Texas for Lawsuit Reform. Now, they claim to be a grassroots grassroots organization. They claim they have over 15,000 members. And follow the money. Mm. They get 90% of their money from six different donors. And they have had a profound effect on jury trials in Texas. They have had a profound effect on the laws that the legislature has passed, limiting lawsuits, putting caps on lawsuits. And the Supreme Court that's been elected by the people who get advertising from Texas for Lawsuit Reform, millions of dollars, remember. Uh, they're up there embracing arbitration clauses. Now, you know, you and I, we have arbitration clauses on our cell phones, on our credit cards. We have arbitration clauses on almost every contract that we sign these days, including employment contracts. So that if you go to work in some of the bigger corporations and you get hurt, you don't have work. They don't buy workers' compensation. They get you to sign an arbitration, and then they buy some sort of a quasi-insurance policy that has a cap of either 300000 or 500000 mm-hmm. And that's just about the limit of it. So you have to go to arbitration, which is fundamentally unfair, because if I'm going in front of an arbitrator whose job is to be an arbitrator, that person is probably going to come from a background of being very conservative, you know, bankers, uh, you know, people who retired from big business, they go into arbitration, but they get chosen by ostensibly both parties, right? It's like you're trying to pick your juror. Well, if, if I go in there with Jim Bob Smith with a case for arbitration, that's going to be the only time Jim Bob's ever going to have to go to an arbitration, whereas uh, AT&T, on the other hand, does it all the time. They pick arbitrators every day. So my middle-of-the-man arbitrator Guess who he's going to be leaning for? Because mm-hmm. he wants that next job. That's right. Yeah. Rick, time's ticking. I, I want to ask a question, though. I, I've had discussions with people, and some of their concerns are, I can't afford an attorney. Um, I don't think they're aware that you may give the f- consultation for free. Is, yeah. You want to explain that? Tell people how they can get a hold of you and well, what you do and how they shouldn't be worried about anything up front if, they, if you're able to work something out, maybe? Yeah, I mean, you know, I do all of my cases and have pretty much uh, for the last 35 years. Uh, on a contingency fee. In other words, we get a part of the recovery. And I'm happy to talk to people about cases uh, because it's not always injury cases. It can be a contract case. Uh, We've handled oil and gas cases. We've handled uh, some patent stuff regarding, well, not really patent stuff, but genetics, you know, theft of of, uh, proprietary interest in genetics. Uh, Some of the stuff is very scientific and gets rather complicated, but the bottom line is that people will come to us with their problems and their concerns about being harmed. If you've been harmed by another, in other words, another being a corporation or a car wreck or a truck wreck or a you know, real estate transaction, uh, we, we could help and sit and talk to you about it. And if 
we don't want your case, we'll tell you. If we don't think we can help you, we will let you know. If there are certain things in the law that say, uh, no, you know, I'm sorry you've been harmed, but guess what? Your right to a jury trial has been infringed, we'll tell you. But if we think we can help you and we take the case, uh, we will uh, front, you know, the expenses. And some of these cases can be very expensive. Uh, for instance, uh, I've had a couple of cases where we had a half a million dollars in expenses laying on the table as we were entering the courtroom. Uh, so a lot of people can't afford that kind of stuff. Yeah, but when Especially you, if you've been severely injured and you can't work. Yeah, but a person who comes to you and you decide to do that and you're just putting half a million dollars on the table, ladies and gentlemen, they're going to work extremely hard for you. <laughs> okay? Well, I mean, we're, we're really proud of the job we do, jobs we do. Uh, we were, for instance, Newsweek named my firm one of the top ten trial lawyer firms in the nation. Wow. So I was very proud of that. Uh, you know, you talk about super lawyers. We've been named super lawyers four or five different times. Uh, so we've worked hard. I mean, you know, it's been done. It's, uh, well, tell everybody, how to, tell everybody how to get a hold of you. And, um, yeah, we uh, we can be looked at and respectforyou.com, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, okay. for you.com. You can uh, find us in Cameron. We are here. And uh, if you don't know where we are, just ask somebody. But it's down on the same road that the three banks are on, 312 South Houston. Rick, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I've known Arch, the owner of ANSI Farms, for many years. Fantastic guy. Got a great crew. He's got Clint, Dennis, Mike, good quality products, pistols, rifles, shotgun, ammo, knives, accessories, reloading equipment, the works. They can get you what you need. But this week, we're going to talk about the Mossberg 500. Yeah, I know, it's a basic, but it's a classic. And when I was in there, I was just looking around, and I saw the... The Mossberg 500, the 20-inch barrel, the extended mag tube. I'm thinking, you know, we're always looking for new and improved and fancy. Why not just go back to the basic classic stuff that works every time? So I got a, a review here from Guns and Ammo by Brad Fitzpatrick. And I dissected it, so I'm going to read to you parts of it right now. Why the Mossberg 500 is the best home defense shotgun of all time. Today's consumer has a wide variety of choices when selecting a defensive shotgun, but which of these guns earns the title as the best home defense shotgun ever? In my opinion, that would be Brad Fitzpatrick, the Mossberg 500 stands out from the crowd for a number of reasons, and I'm, I'm right there with them. First, Mossberg, and this is a good history here, first, Mossberg has been building the 500 for 52 years. During that time, more than 10 million of these pump guns have rolled off the assembly line in North Haven, Connecticut and Eagle Pass, Texas. For the last 30 years, the 590 has been the shotgun of choice for the U.S. military, and more than 100,000 units have been supplied to the armed forces. The 500 and 590 lines also have the distinction of being the only shotguns ever to pass the rigorous mil-spec 3443 torture test, proving what generations of shooters already knew. Mossberg guns are tough. Pump-action shotguns are favored by police and military for primary, two primary reasons. They are fast and reliable. The Mossberg 500 series has earned a reputation for dependability, which is paramount when selecting a home defense shotgun. Manually cycling the action simplifies the reloading process and reduces the odds of malfunction. In experienced hands, the pump shotgun is almost as fast as a semi-auto. And I can attest to that. I've seen one of my shooters there at the shop use a, a short pump shotgun, and my gosh, he's fast and accurate. And, and sliding the fore-end forward helps not... Well, let me read that again. And sliding the fore end forward helps, helps, I'm skipping my pages here, the shooter to return to the target and stabilize the gun. All of these qualities make pump guns a logical choice for home defense, and Mossberg makes more pump guns than any company in the world. 
Mossberg is the largest manufacturer of shotguns in the U.S. by over 40%, thanks to a large part of the success of the 500, 590, and 590A1. With over 20 different defensive and tactical offerings, Mossberg most likely has a shotgun that meets your needs. They offer versions with extended magazine tubes, heat shields, integral lights, accessory rails, tactical sights, and a host of other accessories. From a practical standpoint, Mossberg shotguns have several design elements that make them a superb choice for home defense. First of all, the top of the receiver mounted safety is easy to find and manipulate and doesn't require adjusting the position of your shooting hand. In addition, left-handed shooters will find the safety position as easy to use as right-handed shooters will, and the large notched safety button is easy to locate even in total darkness. The action release is located at the rear left of the trigger, making it easy to find and eliminating the need to reach around the front of the trigger guard. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the shell lifters of the Mossberg pumps remain in the up position when a shell is in the chamber. This allows for faster reloads without the possibility of pinched fingers. Robust design, a variety of options, and a 50-plus year history of excellence makes the Mossberg line a logical choice for home defense. In addition, this gun is still made in the U.S. and is still sold for a reasonable price. There are plenty of defensive shotguns in the world, but in my mind, the Mossberg 500 is still the best. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I remember way back in the day, many, 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 many years ago, my very first shotgun was a Mossberg 500, pistol grip with an 18-inch barrel. And I shot that thing like crazy, and it never glitched. And from that point on, I've always had a Mossberg of some sort, whether it be a Mossberg 500 or a Maverick 88, something like that. But they're great, great priced. Um, you can adapt them for pretty much any scenario. Fiber stocks, wood stocks, cami stocks. And if you go to ANC Firearms in Heidenhammer, Arch has got one there on the shelf. He's got a variety of different Mossbergs. If you don't like the one that's there, they can get you whatever you want. Reliable, uh, easy to use, good price. Give them a call, 254-983-4417. If you go to aaronsgunshop.com, go to the Facebook page, you'll see me holding the, the 500 there, the 20-inch one with the extended tube. So check them out. ANC Firearms in Heidenhammer, 254-983-4417. Tell them you heard it here on the radio. Let them know their sponsorship is working. And remember, it's a circle of life. You support the sponsors who support me. Welcome back, everybody, to the Aaron's High Cabin Metro Radio Program. And to my left sits Bill Whitmire, head of the Republican. He's a Republican chair for Milam County and also, um, of course, the host of his special show, Bleacher Bum Radio. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's good to always have you here because I know you've got a, a, a good opinion feel for all the things that we're going to be talking about in a little bit here. I've been talking to you about some articles I've been reading and things that are irritating me, and I'm sure there's some things that are maybe irritating you. And there's so much of it, I don't really know where to start. Is there anything that I want to just spill out of you that we can start this off with, or am I going to spit up my guts first? No, let's wait to spit up your guts. I'll give you something that, that I kind of wanted to, that I think would feed into your audience pretty well, and that is, uh, obviously, we've talked a little bit about the constitutional carry law that's being pushed through the legislature right now, or trying to be you know, pushed through the legislature, and I think it had a pretty good chance of passing this year. However, it's hit a hitch, and it's kind of the same hitch that we had several years ago. 2012, we were looking to change the platform for the Republican Party of Texas, and a group of, it's a Fort Worth group of constitutional carry folks showed up in front of the convention carrying weapons legally. There was nothing wrong with the way they were carrying the weapons, but it kind of 
changed the outlook of some of the delegates to where it didn't pass and didn't get on the platform until 2014. And and uh, several of us sat down with the, the leaders of that group and said, you're, 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 what you want to do is great. The way you're trying to do it is the wrong way because you're intimidating people. There's a phrase that says, you may be right, but it's not always profitable. Right. And and, and that's what's happening this year is there's a... A a large group of legislators that are sitting on the fence, and I think they want to go with the constitutional carry. However, this same group has organized a a larger group of people to go out to those legislators' neighborhoods, home neighborhoods. And these guys are in Austin. Their families are out there. And and it's kind of taken that – now I think that that bill is going to get put on the back burner, and it's going to be on hold until 2021 – because there are so many legislators who have been, either been offended or, or or feel like there's some sort of intimidation. So it's it, it's a I, I, my feeling in talking to guys in Austin is that they really want to push this through. They really want to get to where we need to be with that. But it's this group of folks that take it to the limit, and that limit may cost them getting it. And here's the next part of it: is is our state the way our state's voting is changing? And we're not going to have, you know, I think we're going to have a legislator, legislature in another two or four years that's much more closer to the center. I don't think we're going to go as far and swing all the way back to the left where everybody's a Democrat, but we're going to come back towards the center. We're already seeing it happen in, in you know, the property tax legislation. They wanted a 2% hike was all the counties could do. Uh, Dan Patrick's group has offended so many people that that was changed to where they thought they could only get 4.5. They ended up compromising and getting 3.5, which means the county can only raise taxes 3.5% before it has to go to a vote. I'm in full agreement with that. I think there needs to be some kind of limitation on your county government. But that could have been so much more, but these kind of tactics of going after pie-in-the-sky type legislation and not handling the basic stuff is what cost us so the message is be smart about how you protest things be smart about how you demonstrate things and show people how to safely do things but not try to work on the intimidation side because whether you mean to intimidate or not that's what happens and when that happens people are apt to not do what you want them to do if they feel intimidated that goes both ways i mean people on both sides of whatever whatever the issue is if you get so incensed and you don't use your common sense it screws it up for everybody. And I'm good with the other side, not using their common sense, but I'm on this side and I kind of want them to use our common sense. So, but that's all I, on that. All right. I'll tell you what, since we're talking Texas and Texas has a large border, uh, let's talk about this article here about the New Mexican government, New Mexico, (laughs) New Mexico governor attacking the citizen border patrol after 1800 illegal cross in 24 hours. How do you even come up with the guts or the onions to attack a border patrol for trying to protect his border when 1800 in one day are trying to cross the border? Well, she's a Democrat and she's looking at potential voters. I mean, if you stop 1800 people from coming across, that's 1800 voters that you're not going to get next you know, election. It, you say that so quickly and People may think you're just kidding. You're not. And I agree. I I totally get it. There are states out there that have put that onto their state legislation this year is to try to make it legal for illegals to vote in their state. And let's not call them migrants or this, that, or the other. They are illegal aliens. Exactly. They are illegal aliens. I got a call. Okay. I'll tell you what. We got a call. Let's see. uh, See if I can get it on. 
All right, everybody. Kincaid's doing a great job here. We're going to see if we can get the caller on. Anyway, this article, I I want to read this article because I want you to hear the anger, the stupidity, the ridiculousness of what these people say. And I'm stalling because I think we got a call, right? Yeah. Great job. All right. I'm going to read this article. When the caller gets on, hold on. Just stay up there for a while. Um, it goes, just days after Border Patrol apprehend 1,800 illegal immigrants in one day, the government of New Mexico and the ACLU are criticizing a citizen group patrolling the border. It should go without saying that regular citizens have no authority to arrest or detain anyone. New Mexico's Democratic Governor Michelle Luan Krisham told the New York Times. She also said it's completely unacceptable that migrant families might be menaced or threatened in any way, shape, or form when they arrive at our border. Well, let me tell you something, lady. They shouldn't be dragging their kids in the middle of the night through dangerous areas. They should keep them home and do it the right way. I'm pausing on the article because we have a call. Welcome, Welcome. to Aaron's High Cabinet Radio Program. My name is Matt. Who am I speaking to? Hello? Go ahead. Turn your radio down, I guess. All right, put them on hold, okay? We're going to continue on the article. Uh, they're, they're just not. Meanwhile, the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico sent a letter to Governor Grisham and Attorney General Hector Balderas on Thursday asking for the groups of patriots voluntarily patrolling the border to be investigated. Below is an excerpt of the letter in which they call the group United Constitutional Patriots, White Nationalists, and Fascists. Here it goes, quote, two nights ago on April 16, 2019, an armed fascist military militia organization describing itself as the United Constitutional Patriots arrested nearly 300 people seeking safety in the United States, including young children near Sunland Park, New Mexico. Other videos appear to show arrests in the past few hours. The vigilante members of the organization, including Jim Benvey, who posted videos and photographs of the unlawful of the unlawful arrest of social media are not police or law enforcement and they have no authority under New Mexico or federal law to detain or arrest immigrants in the United States. Their actions undermine the legitimate efforts of the state's law enforcement officials to keep New Mexico's families safe and the erode the community trust. uh, Whatever. Down here, though, it said... What was it? The citizen's arrest? Why don't you explain that, Bill? You said it clearly. Where This guy, they don't arrest them. They're verbally... They're very uh, <laughs> non-threatening from what I saw. There was uh, The BBC did a, a really a pretty good uh, article on it, uh, video uh, expose on it, and the uh, gentleman that was speaking for the group said that basically what they do is they get up and they say, uh, you know, you're under citizen's arrest and uh, you need to wait until the uh, Border Patrol gets here and then that's it. And he said that nine out of ten of them will just sit down and wait for the border patrol, and and then that one out of ten will walk off. And if they walk off, they don't do anything; they just let them walk. So here you have these people making a stink, and it makes you when you read the story, you people are so worried about losing your potential voters. You don't give a damn about the security of your border. It's disgusting. It makes my stomach turn when I read what these people have to say and their neglect for this country, its borders. It's the way we do things. And the key word is illegal. Illegal. What part of illegal don't you freaking get, you morons? Well, then they, then they uh, this week, 
the president came out and said that let's send those to sanctuary cities. Amen to that. And uh, there was actually a study done by, uh, I can't think, it was one of the University of California campuses, and they said that uh, in actuality, 95% of all illegal aliens that are detained, then they if they are given bail to come back to court, they are allowed to go to a family member who is either legally in the nation, legally in America, or they are an American citizen. And that 95% of them end up in sanctuary cities because that's where their relatives are to begin with. Let's talk about Cher. Did you see the article about Cher? What she said? As much as uh, I like Cher, she... I, you like Cher? I like everything outside. If she would just shut her mouth politically, I'd like her, okay? I, I Yeah, I do like her. I've been watching her since I was a little kid. But you put that other part to it, man, it sinks the ship. But here she goes, uh, no, no, we can't do the Sanctuary City thing because we can't help who we've got already. So here you've got a city that can't take any more people, yet you want 1,800 people to come across the border overnight in one night. This country can't take it. Because these people bring, they take the money out of the country, and if they're still in the country, the services of people like you and I, the middle class who pay for most of the bill, there's only so many of us putting money into the system, and they got all these illegals coming and taking that money and bringing it down south again. And yeah, they do some things for us. Sure, I get the field, the whole, I get all that crap, okay? But don't don't even start with me there. I'm talking about the mass um border crossings of all these people it's hurting it's going to kill this country well they talk about bringing them in and them and that the illegals do jobs that americans won't do and uh if that's the truth and that's the god honest truth okay i get it take away the welfare from the americans that are here that won't do those jobs we give away so much welfare and so many unemployment benefits to Americans. If there are actually jobs that Americans won't take, that we got to bring illegals in here, that's fine. Get rid of all these long-term unemployment plans, long-term welfare plans to all these people who won't get out and get a job then. Because obviously, if we've got to bring illegals in here to do jobs that Americans won't do, then the jobs are here. That's not the problem. The problem is... The people getting off their rears and going and doing the job. A lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people, I hear a lot of people, I watch a lot of people on news reports on this, and their responses to questions on, concerning this topic are so shallow. It's as though they don't do their homework. They have no core belief. They yeah. have no understanding of the fundamentals of being an American. It's getting diluted and lost. It's scary, man. We were talking about the numbers that people do things. This, this country was formed, what, what, 3% of the population at that time actually doing something, or was it even less than that? Uh, it's probably less than less that. Less than that. A very small percentage keep our way of life preserved, ladies and gentlemen, and more and more of that percentage is getting dwindled because people are being ignorant to the fact they got their heads up their phones, they're not paying attention, they're being swayed by a media that is very against the way we live. I don't care what you say, I see it. When I see it, and I hear it personally and then read it or watch it and it's being spun around, you're trying to make me look like a fool and I'm no fool. I do my homework. Well, I would say probably 10% of the population, not not the world population, but the U.S. population is proactive or they're going to take action before things happen. 90% of America is reactive. You you never hear of any, well, I can't say never, but you very rarely hear of anybody coming up with something to save 
the world from some sort of cancer or to save the world from some sort of disease or to save the world from some sort of uh, of anything, you know, mistreatment or whatever, until that person's life has been touched by either that disease or that mistreatment or whatever. And until that happens, everybody just runs around not thinking about it. Somebody asked me a while back about how do we increase voter turnout? How do we get more people to vote? Obviously, voter apathy is terrible. We had 22% of the people last year vote in the primaries. The primaries, people will show up a little bit more for the general election, maybe 40%, but only 20% for the primaries. But in all reality, the primary is where you choose your candidates. That's where you choose the person that's got the chance to win in November. And if you're not there in the primaries, you're not doing it. So my solution was, real simple, as a government, you create the budget first. Then you turn around and you look at your GMP and you say, okay, this is the percentage of the GMP that we need to cover this budget, plus 10% to pay off the debt. Then you set that tax rate at whatever it is. So let's say the tax rate, you're going to have to have 30% of everybody's pay, everybody's pay, no deductions, no anything. Everybody pays 30% to pay the bills for that year. And that's how you do it. And if everybody, whether you make $5 million or you make $5,000, if you have to pay 30% of your income, people will vote. People will get up and vote. But right now, nobody does anything until their life is personally touched yep. by it. We don't think about the guys in Afghanistan right now. A lot of people don't because they don't have any friends. They don't have any family. Their life is not touched. The other night, I got to spend the night in the Chicago airport. I spent 28 hours there. If you ever have an opportunity to spend a lot of time in the Chicago airport like that, pass. But <laughs> I got to spend all that time in there, and it was graduation day at Navy boot camp. And I'm watching all these 19, 18, 20-something-year-olds walk through in their brand-new dress blues with one medal on there, a National Defense medal in most cases. Some might have had a shooting medal. And then I'm watching all these young men that are the same age walking around with laptops and briefcases. Some dressed nice because they might have a nice job. Others dressed, however. And I think, you know, those kids that are walking around in those blue uniforms, black uniforms, let's be honest, they are black. In but, uniform. But in uniform, they've got something there. They've got something the rest of their life that they put something on the line for their country. They are proactive. And, and maybe some of them join because family, but they are proactive. And those other guys... They don't have a problem in the world. They don't care about any of this stuff, you know. And I'm sure many. I'm sure there's a nice handful of those who are very patriotic. Don't don't misunderstand me. The yeah. The the point is the culture. The kids and children who are being raised through our schools now are not being taught the patriotism of this country and what that flag represents. People say, oh, "I'm not." Who's that? senator or whatever the congressman who said that rag he's a rag that that flag on top of the pole represents a way of life and it's our duty to protect it defend it and keep it and yeah like i was talking about with rick as long as the the pillars of strength of this country the constitution the bill of rights and all that and the patriotism is there not chipped away sure we can try all these different things out and if they work they work if they don't we vote them out the next time it comes around but you can't dissect disintegrate, chip away, throw away your pillars of your nation. And one of those pillars is a secured border. Yep. It, it's, um, you know, I, I recently had a chance to uh, to uh, spend some time over in England while we were there last week, and then all the Brexit stuff was going off. 
And uh, we were actually there for the big demonstration around Parliament. We we picked the worst time in the world to go to Parliament because that's when they had that was Brexit Day, and they had a huge demonstration. And we were it's kind of cool. I mean, until Get the smoke until the smoke bombs came out, and it was all pretty cool. But um, the uh, the uh, he's online right now. He's on the phone now. But the guy that uh, the thing about it was, I had a chance to talk to a lot of of. Um, English folks about this while we were there, and a friend of mine who uh, is a pilot, who was one of my pilots in the Navy, who lives over there now, he said there are good things and bad things about living in England. You know, you have universal health care. However, it's more about quantity than quality. They're just trying to get people through there. So we make jokes about people that have bad teeth from England, but the truth is, unless you got the money to go to a dentist and pay your own bill, they're just going to do what they got to do to get rid of you. And the thing about Brexit was the biggest complaint I heard was the fluidity of the border. And a lot of folks were upset because you'd get people come in from Poland. You'd get people and they have free reign to come come and go as they want because they're all EU citizens. They would come in to England and take jobs for cheaper money than English folks that live there were willing to take sounds familiar sounds very familiar and once they got in there and they started being paid in england they immediately became eligible for the english health care system which in turn backed that system up which everybody in england you get free health care you're paying for it in your taxes but you get free health care but now that you've just added all these workers from other countries that come in and now they're a part of it as well and as the EU is one big European government, essentially, what it, what it means is that every country that they have in, in Europe is basically a state. It's just like our federal government, except just like our federal government. Well, it's not except, but just like our federal government, England, just like Texas is right now, is a giver. They pay more money into the EU than they receive back from the EU in benefits. Texas, as a state, we give more into the union and get less back out. And that's where, you know, with that Brexit, kind of got off the subject there, but that's where that Brexit was. The the porous borders is, is one of the leading reasons for Brexit. I worry about the southern border. I also worry about the border with the United States. I think we need a wall all the way around Texas. But... Uh, that that border it was it was amazing to me. I thought it was going to be economics and other reasons, and it was economics. But it was the the main reason that every person that I asked, "Why are you for Brexit?" There, within their top one or two, was always the porousness of the border and just allowing anybody with an EU because you come in, you let's say you come into Germany, you have some Islamic folks come into Germany, you don't know what their background is, but then they get that document that where they can travel around the EU because of their German uh not citizenship but they're uh they're legal in germany so they can travel around the eu now you're letting them in and it's legal there this one is illegal these folks are coming across the united states border illegally this is not even a matter of legitimate crossings you know we're a very compassionate country but i want to make a comparison here if i'm a soldier on the battlefield wearing a uniform i've got compassion there's sometimes you pull the trigger, there's sometimes you don't. But if it gets to the point where my compassion will endanger a mission, that compassion gets put in check and the job needs to be done. The compassion of this country, of a lot of people in this country who say, open borders, let them come in, we'll take care of them, uh, you're not seeing the picture. You're about to get yourself killed 
figuratively speaking, like the soldier would be showing compassion to the enemy who's going to try and kill them. Okay, Compassion is compassion, and it's great, but it must be under check in certain conditions. Okay, That is your host's opinion, and I think it's a very valid opinion. What do you think of that? Well, you can say it like I heard someone say it last week. It's my opinion, but it also happens to be fact. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree. I mean, you know, somebody asked me last week, what what did I think was the biggest? uh, One of the folks from England said, what what did I think was the biggest problem in the world? And I said, overpopulation, pure and simple. There's just too many. There's more people on Earth right now alive than there are dead in the history of the world. You know, and, and 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 we don't think about that. Yeah, but I still think you know, this, and it, this world, the, the Lord blesses us with a place that it can take care of anything. It's a matter. Well, of how that's we the thing it. is, we we don't look at that. You know, you think about it in this terms of a city. The city can build for ten years down the road, or they can build ten years behind. You look at Austin; they're continually ten years behind in their building. To catch up, yeah. And you know. 30 years ago when I was in high school, I remember they said, uh, you know, you had nine or ten rail spurs coming out of Austin. And they wanted to do a light rail system. All the rural counties voted for it. Travis County voted against it and outvoted everybody because of the number of people in Travis County. And we never got a light rail system. Think about how useful a light rail system would have because one of those railways came right here through Cameron. Think about it. If you work in Austin, how easy would it be to jump on a train, a light rail train, into Austin to go to work in the morning? Instead of having to make that drive in your own car, that'd be a whole lot easier. But we passed up on it because of Travis. We as a country, we as a world, we tend to look, we, we tend to be too reactive and not proactive. How many, look at Rockdale and Cameron, your water systems, pretty good, huh? Mm, now we're really reactive about it, but why weren't we proactive about it 30 years ago and, and done it in little steps over 30 years instead of trying to figure out how to make it work now? Same thing with the roads, step. man. Put layer yeah. upon layer upon yeah. layer, and you got this big hump on the road, and this, trying to cross from one road to the other is ridiculous. Yeah. Hey, look, before we run out of time, this has been eating at me. Yeah, it has. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> There's um, Omar. What's her Elon, name? Elon Omar. Elon Omar, okay. What's her status? She's a House of Representative member, a Democrat House of Representative member from Minnesota, from Minneapolis, actually. Okay, and there's this feud going on, I guess, with with Trump and her based on words and tweets. But the bottom line is this. She goes, she says, and she's Muslim, Somalia-American, hyphenated American there. So she should be, she's from Somalia, like I'm Lebanese heritage, but I'm an American. You cut me, I bleed red, white, and blue. But she goes here for far too long. We have lived with the discomfort of being a second class citizen. And frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it, too. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm tired of Muslims in this country not standing up and saying, hey, yeah, I'm a Muslim. I'm a peace loving American. I'm a Muslim. That's your faith. And God bless you. I'll wear a uniform to defend your right to have your faith that way. But you need to stand up. You need to say things and, and defend this country. Everybody seems to be scared of bringing this up. So when she says this comment of you're tired of it, well, I'm tired of you and your attitude of how everything's got to revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around this country and the safety and the security of this country. And everybody needs to put towards that. What's your thought on that, Bill? 
Well, then she went on to say that it was, uh, and I want to phrase it, I don't want to take out a phrase. She said that CARE was founded after 9 11, which it wasn't. It was founded in 94, but because they recognized that some people did something that mm. all of us started, starting, that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Well, first of all, CARE was founded in 94 by some scholars to make, and it, and it got, sidetracked and it's about seven or eight people that they claim they have all those members and it it stands for the council on american islamic relations and it's a farce they have been accused of and they have they have done things to aid hamas and israel and various other things what she said is not the first time she said something completely stupid either she's she's gone after she's made more anti-semitic remarks than some of the neo-Nazis running around, but she's made it from an Islamic standpoint, so therefore, uh, it's you know, we're going to let it slide. Most liberals let it slide. The president has not, and other staunch conservatives, real conservatives, have not let it, and it should not let it. And when it first happened, both Nancy Pelosi, Charles Schumer, uh, all of them, Van Hollen, all of those big liberals in D.C. stood up against it. Then when she did it again, I mean, then she, they, they wanted her to apologize. She didn't apologize. She made some half attempt at an apology that was not an apology. But then within a week, she did it again, and they all, you know, just said, oh, she does, she's being taken out of context. context There's the context right there. We just read what her remarks were about 9-11, and she got bashed over 9-11, and then it was, you know, oh, well, I, that's not what I really meant, blah, 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 blah. It's not what I said. It you know, is somebody, exactly what she said. A lot of people may not like what I think or what I say, and first, I don't care, but two... <laughs> What I think and what I say is all based on patriotism, the protection of this country. I and so many others, you included, have worn that uniform to defend that flag and give you the right, those of you who may oppose these things, the right to say what you don't like. And I'll defend it. But, man, you got to secure, you got to protect the goose. You kill the goose, there go your eggs. And speaking of eggs, it's Easter and, um, happy Easter. Happy Easter. And take those eggs that that blessed goose gives us. Color them any color you want. Have a great time with your family. Enjoy the food, companionship. And uh, don't forget what the true meaning of Easter is. And um, until next week, I guess uh, keep your powder dry. And God bless. Kincaid, take us out with some good music. And we'll see you next week.